Welcome to more Money Secrets. I'm Rob Moore. This is Harry Kumar who produces the show. We will be reacting to people's questions and other gurus and experts on all things money. If you do like money and you want more money content in these strange economic times, make sure you like the video, subscribe to the channel and turn the notification bell on. Right, let's get started. Okay, Rob, so I've got a whole load of videos here for you to react to. Now, Yeah. a little bit different from how we've formatted this before. We normally kind of do a, a random order, but we're going to take it in order of particular people for this one. So we're going to start with Mr. Cardone. We've got a few videos. So if you're ready, Rob. Yep. Let's watch this. 80,000, 100 grand a year. This was 35 years ago. I was in a small town, so I wasn't thinking big enough. I didn't think I could own a business. But here was a guy in front of me. He was the car dealer's son. He was running it. He's going on fishing trips every weekend. I'm working on the, the dealership floor on the weekend. And then when I left that job, I went and worked for a guy named Tom Stuker. I was traveling all over the country. I was so fascinated with that job. I got in business for myself because I couldn't do anything else. And I would lose money for the first three years because I started from scratch. I didn't know what to do first. I didn't know what to do second. I spent days figuring out what my name was going to be rather than going and getting customers. If I was to do it again today, I wouldn't do any of that. I would go find it, a section of businesses or sector that I'm excited and passionate yeah. about. I would go try to buy those businesses for no money. To Lake Charles. What do you think about that and do you agree with Grant? So anyone who started a business and is successful always wishes they'd have started sooner. Uh, and you know, not having any money or experience is always an excuse that just holds us back and holds us back. Or, you know, we've got responsibilities, families, mortgages, car loans, and we wait and we wait and we wait. And before you know it, you're 50, you're 60, you haven't started your business. So I think starting as quick as you can is good. But actually, it was really good what he did, even though he didn't acknowledge it in the video, which was he worked for a couple of guys, um, worked for, for the car dealership, for example, and learned and watched what the son of the car dealership did to build a business, to have the lifestyle that he wanted. So I actually think it's pretty good to find someone like myself or Grant, you know, have got an established business that's successful and, and learn and earn, which means you can go, you can work, even if it's just on, you know, an entry level job, not paying massive money. And, you know, you get some meetings with the entrepreneur and you shadow them for a bit and you watch how the company um, is built and organised and you know in that year or two that you work for them you you save your surplus earnings and then you start when you're ready so I think actually even though he said he would do it differently by starting sooner I think what he learned working in these businesses helped him build the knowledge that he did. Grant mentioned as well people kind of getting procrastinated and stuck is this a common thing you see with people who are transitioning from employed to starting their own business where they just get stuck designing the logo or coming up with the name of the company rather than getting in and starting the business. Yeah, I see loads of people who um, thinking of the name or the, the colour palette for their new business and they think about it for weeks and months. And really what that is is active procrastination, i.e. they're scared of making a decision. So they make out that they're really busy, you know, moving papers on a desk. Oh yeah, I move some papers on a desk or um, or I just, I'm writing out my to-do list of things to do. Or I just remembered something and just write that on and cross that off. So, and there's a lot of active procrastination for sure. So, you know, get on the internet, go into Facebook and social media groups, go and find competitors, read books and start now, get perfect later. You know, build a minimum viable product and go and put it out to the market at a discounted price, get some feedback uh, and then 
And then based on that feedback, tweak, improve, move forward. I wrote a book called Start Now, Get Perfect Later, by the way, and in case anyone is procrastinating. I don't agree with some of it. This is one thing I wanted to ask you about this fight. This is what success looks like. It should be just like this. It shouldn't be up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. It shouldn't be good month, bad month, good month, bad month, good month. It shouldn't be that. You know why? If I get rid of the downs, what do I end up with? All ups, man. Yeah. Because you're the first, the first person I've ever heard say that you want to aim for all ups and that it's realistic. Yeah. I don't know what the downs do. No one does, but it happens. I've been in a treatment center for drug addiction. Okay, uh, I almost went busted in 2008. I don't want to keep doing those. I hear everybody say, oh, you learned so much from failure. You can't do that with money. You can't do it flying a plane. Like, oh, you gonna learn from your failure? Uh, how many times can you fucking crash a plane? Like, th this is just an old idea to connect with people. Oh, learn from your failures, man, so much. You're gonna learn so much. This is bullshit that speakers do to connect with people. You can't do it in, real in the real world. I don't agree with... So when it comes to money, can you learn from your failures? Of course you can learn from your failures, but it's better to learn from other people's failures. So you'll have more ups and less downs if what would have been the down, i.e. a failure of your own, you learned vicariously through someone else. But Grant says that's not possible when it comes to money. Why is that different? Do you agree or disagree? I don't want to keep doing those. I hear everybody say, oh, you learn so much from failure. You can't do that with money. You can't do it flying a plane. Can't learn failure from money. You can learn from failure with money. Because I get that you can't learn from failure in an aeroplane. If you're in an aeroplane and you fail once and the thing crashes, difficult to learn when you're dead. So I get that analogy. But you can learn with money because money flows. Money is energy. Currency means to flow. So you make a mistake with money. You make a bad investment in, say, crypto. You lose 10 grand. Well, you've got another chance, another day to go and earn that 10 grand back to invest that again. So you can learn from failure with money. You can't learn from failure um, with one mistake in, a, in an aeroplane because it crashes, you die. But you can also learn from other people's failures and mistakes. One of the biggest misconceptions out there is that Grant's referring to it. You have to make all the mistakes yourself. You have to learn from mistakes. But other people have made them and survived. So if you want to learn about um, not going bust, study or meet or talk to someone who's gone bust and ask them a load of questions and find out what it is that they know that you need to know. I remember, for example, when lockdown happened and we were calculating the cash in bank we needed to survive in case we made no sales, which we didn't for many months, by the way. Um, and I remember learning from Bill Gates one to two years worth of cash flow in the bank, i.e. no sales, and you've got six or 12 or 18 months worth of cash in the bank paying your overheads. So I didn't know that um, when I, I didn't know that in the last recession, and so we burned more cash. But I learned that from Bill Gates, and in the lockdown, we stashed about two years' worth of cash, and we rode out a few months, and we were fine. It's interesting with Grant. He's great on social media, and he says, well, you know, people say learn from failure to connect with the audience. But he's saying you can't learn from failure. 
to connect with his audience. He's not doing anything any different. I would just assume that everything you know about money is incorrect. That's why when I tell people don't go buy a house, everybody freaks out. They're like, that can't be right. That can't be right. Why? Because that's what you've been told to buy a house your whole life. Because the banks want you to buy a house. Now, everybody just heard that. It's going to say, I just saw you buy a house in Malibu. Right. I can do anything I want now. Right. <laughs> Here comes the arrogance. <laughs> I would just... Another rent versus buy type of scenario. What do you think about that? Have we not already got content on this? Yeah, but this is always different, isn't it? We haven't had it talking about Grant. And he said it differently, not necessarily rent versus buy. Okay, yeah. Play again. Assume that everything you know about money is incorrect. That's why when I tell people don't go buy a house, everybody freaks out. They're like, that can't be I definitely agree that everything you think you know about money, that the banks and the media have been pushing, is incorrect. In fact, I would go as far as to say it's propaganda. And they have ulterior motives for making you believe that you need a house and making you believe that saving and pension will look after you for the rest of your life. Wrong. So is the house not the best investment the average person will make in their life? The banks want you to own a home so that you can get a mortgage with them and pay them recurring income, reverse recurring income you could call this, every month for the rest of your life. So the banks want you to own a property so that they can make money from you. They can be tied to you, mortgage, until death. That's why the banks will tell you that the house is the greatest investment you'll ever make. A house is an asset, but it's not necessarily the greatest investment. If you own a house, you'll get capital appreciation. Your mortgage should be less than the equivalent property to rent. You've got tax breaks. So over time, your asset, your house, like a watch, will go up in value. Any maintenance and repairs you do in that property is going into maintaining and repairing your property. If you rent, you're paying more than a mortgage, you're paying into someone else's pocket, the landlord, therefore it's dead money. That asset is going up, but for the landlord and not for you. So actually, owning a house, you're missing on significant capital appreciation and tax breaks if you don't. However, where people say, oh, but a house is not an investment, what they mean is when you've got a mortgage, you have an outgoing. Whereas if you buy an investment property, you, the mortgage is covered by the rent from the tenant. So people don't know the difference between an investment and an asset. So a house is both an asset and an investment. Does not make a great investment, makes a great asset. 
Buying a house, worst investment you'll ever make in your entire life. Let's say you paid a million dollars to buy a house. Average house here is 576. 576 is what you paid. Now you need 12% for broker fees. Let's say you keep the house 10 years. You need 10% in maintenance fees. It's 1% a year maintenance fees. It's about 2% in property taxes every year. That's 20%. 2 times 10 is 20. And it's probably 7% to the bank, so that's 70%. Total those up, it's 112%. $576,000 home will have to be sold for $1.2 million in 10 years. You're not going to sell it for that. To break even, dead money, and you had to put 100 grand down to do this deal. They're serving a master. They'll borrow money from the Bank of America, and then if they can get some more money, they'll have a little retirement account that funds Wall Street. This is a big game, bro. Rather than buying one house, rent where you live, and take that 100 grand and go buy a piece of real estate where other people live. I just don't need to own a home on the way up. I need to own assets that pay me on the way up. And once I have enough cash flow from the assets, then if I want to go buy a house or a watch or a car, I buy it out of the passive income. Buying a house. Somewhat alluding to what you were talking about before, but do you agree with Grant on those statements? All those fees Grant mentioned there are way lower in the UK. Way lower. Agent's fee will be two and a half, three percent, not 12 percent. There's one tax, federal, not state. There's two taxes um, in America. There's tax breaks for owning property and property doubles every 12 to 15 years in the UK. It's proven since 1088. So the UK and the US markets are really different. I believe in buying liabilities funded by assets. So you buy your cars and your watches from passive income from assets. I completely agree with that. Sometimes, for example, instead of buying a car outright, you get a bit of finance on it and you pay the monthly repayments with the monthly passive income from your assets. You still need somewhere to live. And if you don't buy a house to own to pay the mortgage, you've got to rent someone else's house. And rent is usually higher than mortgage. And rent is always dead money. Whereas even if you're a slave to the banks, you're still paying down the loan you got from the bank. So still think it's good to own a house. Definitely think it's good to build asset. So still think it's good to own a house. Here's the next thing that people don't really talk about. They assume you've only got one, one pot of money. Oh, you, you buy a house or you buy an investment. Mm. Well, what about you buy a house and then you raise money and you do no money down for an investment. And then you recycle finance from another property or you do a partnership with someone and you get another house and another house. So I bought 20 properties, no money down. I didn't need one deposit, I needed no deposits. I bought my first 20 properties, no money down. So it's not, not very creative to think, oh, well, I'll either buy one house or one investment, that's all I can do. So I know throughout your property journey, um, you've purchased properties to keep them in your portfolio to rent them out, but I know at the start you did sell a few, is that right? I've sold a handful, maybe 15 out of 1,300 purchases or units, yeah. And did you ever lose one pound on those? When, uh, those properties when you went and sold them? Fairly early, I thought that um, flipping properties would be a good thing. You'd make good money. Everyone thinks, you know, buy it for 100 grand, sell it for 150, and I did too. So we bought something for 100. We didn't know of the structural defects. 
So we thought we'd bought it for 100 and it was worth 125. We bought it for 100 and it was probably worth 75. We might have spent 25 grand on it and we sold it at a loss. A relatively small loss, but we sold it at a loss. It was such a great lesson for me to get early in my investing career. One, because I now know that's worth triple. So if I'd have held it, I'd have tripled my money. Until you assume you can make money when you buy and sell, but often you can lose it. Only in assets that cash flow. Now, I get a lot of hate on this one, because that would exclude you buying a home. Yes, you would not buy a home because a home does not cash flow. When you buy a house on a 30-year mortgage, you're the one that's cash flowing the house. The, ca the house does not cash flow you. And this is why I tell you, on the come up, invest in things that cash flow. Rather than buying a car that does not cash flow, why don't you buy a car that you could rent out to the world that would cash flow? Then I'll be like, yeah, buy the car. You want to buy a Lamborghini and rent it out every weekend and then you get cash flow? Cool. You want to buy a house? four units that cash flows and you want to live in one of the units for free cool that cash flows you want to live in a house that you have to feed and pay you got to pay a mortgage you got to pay interest you got to pay maintenance you got to pay a property taxes you got to pay for the broker fees don't do it it doesn't cash flow if it don't cash flow i say no That's only these videos always overhype it with the music um, do you agree with Grant that you should only buy something that cash flows? So the best type of asset is an asset that produces income or cash flow. I agree, you um, buy a car, you rent it out, you buy a house, you rent out the rooms. But there are other types of asset that will appreciate in value and you can still earn from and are a good store of value. You can buy a watch, it can go up in value. You can buy gold or silver, it can go up in value. Those are still assets. They're a good way to diversify your capital, but some assets have three types of income. Well, capital growth, equity, and cash flow. Property being one. The stock market has income and capital growth. You have so you have store of value, like a watch or gold. You have capital growth and income, like a stock. But then you have capital growth, equity and income, like property. So a business model Grant uh, mentioned there was about renting your cars out. You've got quite a few cars. Would you ever rent them out to strangers? Well, I don't need to rent out my cars because the seven cars I have have all been bought with or are being paid by passive income, recurring income from assets. If I had to rent out my Lamborghini and I didn't really know what I was doing, I could rent it out to someone who could trash it. Mm. Um, they may not be insured. If you Airbnb one or two of your rooms out to a weirdo, um, you could end up regretting that. But if you don't risk anything, you risk everything and you can reduce the risk by increasing your, your knowledge. So little businesses I do with young up and coming entrepreneurs is I let them sell my clothes on eBay. Hmm. Uh, and you know, maybe I paid 1500 quid for a shirt and I'll give them 30% and I'll sell it for 70% of its value and they'll get 30% and I'll get 70%. Something that no one tells you is free ownership. 
So it's all very well having an asset that goes up in value and cash flows. Um, that's not always easy to find. Uh, and you maybe want to diversify your money and you still want to live and enjoy your money. So yeah, let's put my, so putting money into the stock market and put it, so putting money into the stock market and putting money into property is disciplined and you know, you're, you're, you're being smart with your money and you're investing. But other than knowing that that money will go up, you're not really getting any enjoyment out of it. Whereas if you buy designer clothes in the sale and you buy things like phones and hi-fi equipment online second hand, you can buy it, own it, store money in it and sell it and make money on it. So I had a value quarter of a million pound hi-fi. I paid 70 odd grand for it because I bought all the components second hand with a bit of research. Uh, and I sold that on and made a profit. Many of my watches that I've owned, money's locked into the watch, sell it on, make a profit. So as much as we all want to make cash flow and invest in the right assets, you can also buy things in your life with money that go up in value. That laptop bag over there. Um, I got bought that for a birthday present, so it cost me nothing. Um, and they've gone up a lot in value. So essentially I'm being paid in capital to own something. I've said right from the beginning that I'm an evil capitalist. I don't make any bones about it. I'm not ashamed of making money. It's very hard to make money. Can I ask you bluntly how much you make? Um, I make $80,000 a month on Patreon. My book is selling about 20,000 copies a week. I have royalties that probably amount to something approximating $1.50 on each of those. Um, the tours garner about $35,000 to $50,000 an evening. I have a business that's generating, I don't know, um, something in the neighborhood of $200,000 a month for me personally. There's some other smaller sources of income than that. You are making a lot of money yes. out of this. I certainly am. I've said right people. The what do you think about that? I don't think Jordan Peterson is an evil capitalist. I think he's being flippant there. I think he is leveraging his knowledge and experience and his notoriety, i.e. his brand, um, he has invested in what he knows, read thousands of books, probably spent a lot of money on himself as an asset. So he's made himself the asset, invested in himself. Uh, and now that he's really well known and he's got the reach, he's turning the reach into revenue, the content into cash flow. And he's building multiple streams of income from his specialist knowledge, which is exactly what I do. I think it's a great thing to do. I think it's very entrepreneurial. No one would be paying for his Patreon if they didn't think it was valuable. No one would be buying his book if they didn't think it was valuable. Hmm. He says something interesting at the start. Let me just replex. I don't want to butcher the quote. So. Beginning that I'm an evil capitalist. I don't make any bones about it. I'm not ashamed of making money. It's very hard to make money. 
thought that was an interesting quote. I'm not ashamed to make money. Mm. It's hard to make money. What do you think about that? Well, I think a lot of people, especially on the left, would associate shame and guilt and judgment and a moral higher ground around entrepreneurs and making money based on them believing in socialism and capitalism and sharing all the sweets. Well, who's going to go and earn some of the sweets? I don't know, let's just share the sweets. Ah. So you can make money and do good, which I believe Jordan Peterson is. You can be valuable to people and make money. You can do what you love and love what you do. You can turn your passion into your profession. In Cambridge, they make lovely handmade fudge. And you wouldn't begrudge paying for the fudge. And you wouldn't call the, and you wouldn't call the artisanal fudge shop owner a greedy, dirty, evil bastard capitalist for selling his fudge to people who walk by his shop in Cambridge. So it can be hard to make money because there's competition and because maybe you don't know what your product and service could be. And making money is linked to how hard you work. You're lazy. You don't produce anything. There's nothing to sell. There's no money to be made. You're productive. You're a hard worker. You produce a lot of units of your product or service as output and you sell them. You make good money. We're in a culture where it's been so easy for so many decades. No world wars, low interest rates, economic stability. It's created a lot of lazy, entitled people, a lot of people on the left who are now in a big shock that um, we actually have to do some work and, and that someone who essentially is popular on the internet um, is raking it in. So much so that when he's asked about it, he refers to himself ironically as an evil capitalist because he knows he'll get criticised for talking about money. What's wrong with talking about money? So Jordan broke down kind of some of his revenue streams. So what are some of the, your monthly revenue streams that you make income from and how much do you make from them? So maybe I'll get some hate for this too, but you did ask. So I've written 18 books, writing my 19th, 20th and 21st. And I'd make similar amount of money per book and I've been selling my books for 12 years. Like Jordan has Patreon, I have Rob.team. And we've had approaching 10,000 members of that site and they pay six pound a month that's about to go up and then i have the 23 pounds plus that level um our training businesses do, do about 20 million a year in sales so um we're probably on target for about 22 million um this year then i have my property portfolio so i have 340 tenants in a portfolio jointly owned by myself and my business partner. And just one of those properties, which has 159 of those 340 odd tenants, um, net about 80 to 90,000 a month, net. So gross, you know, much more than 100,000 a month um, in income. And then I've got all, all the other um, properties broken up into various different units. And um, then I have a 
lettings and management business, which has 1,350 tenants, and that makes 20 to 25,000 a month, something like that. Um, then we have our content on YouTube, mm. podcast. Now that's up and down like a horse draws. So on, on a very bad month, it's been five grand. On a brilliant month, it's been, two, I think, 215,000. We did one month. I, I recall one sponsor paid $131,000 up front, launched NFTs, sold them for eight to 900,000 pounds. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to have multiple streams of income. People say, I'd be happy if I had $400 million. It's like, you think you could handle that responsibility, do you? Like, you're so sure of that. You can't even control your household budget. You live from paycheck to paycheck. Now you, somebody's going to dump a treasure on your steps, and that's going to fix your life. It's like, okay, how much are you going to give to your relatives? Like, none? Oh, that'll work out real well. Too much? So then you're going to take away their responsibility from them, are you? And you're going to get that balance exactly right. And then what are you going to do with that money? Because as soon as you got the money, the parasites are going to come in and take your money. It happens quickly, believe me. It happens unbelievably quickly. Yeah. You know, you'll see, well, the average family fortune lasts three generations. Mm -hmm. That's all. Because money sitting around, not being carefully monitored, it's like water. It just it's, disappears. It's, it's, People say, I'd be happy. Okay, there's a lot to pick up on that. Um, what's your first thoughts? In almost all cases of lottery winners, um, two years often, once they've won tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars, they're in more debt than when they started. I did a lot of research for my book, Money, and one of them was about lottery winners. And Sometimes as little as two years after winning the lottery, sometimes tens of millions of pounds or dollars. And in nearly all cases, the recipient was back to zero or even often in more debt afterwards. And when interviewed, Almost exclusively, all of them would say that they are unhappier now than before they won the money. And the reason is this. We all want money, but we don't know how to handle it. And everything has a downside, and money has a downside. Insurance, maintenance, knowing where to invest, all your friends wanting to sponge off you and spend all of your money knowing the difference between an asset and a liability. For example, there was one winner that was locally here and he just bought a load of quad bikes for him and his mates. And all that money going down and down and down and down and down in value um, as his mates are whizzing around town on these quads instead of putting it into assets to protect and appreciate the money. Jordan said when you make money, the parasites come out. Do you agree? Yeah. Um, yeah, everyone wants easy money. So as soon as people know you've got money, they want some of that money because they think that's fair. What did you do to earn that money? Why should you have money and I don't? 
Oh, you've got money now. You have a moral obligation to give me a load of it. Did that happen to you when you first uh, became rich then? I've had plenty of people, thankfully not my wife. She stood by me when I was broke. But many people who you know what they like about you is your money. And you know that's what they want. And Jordan said that generational wealth probably only lasts three generations. Why do you think that is and do you agree? Yeah, so it's relatively well known that the first generation makes the money. The second generation tries to manage the money made. And the third generation squanders the money managed. And the reason for this is the first generation, the greatest gift they got was not the money. It was learning how to make money, learning the skills and strategies to build fundamental and intergenerational wealth. Now, the second generation didn't learn how to build real wealth and the strategies and tactics. So all they know how to do is shepherd the money. They don't value it that well because they didn't earn it. And like the lottery winner, they spend it rather than in invest it. And it dwindles down in value. And if there's anything left by the time the third generation comes along who didn't know how to build wealth and didn't know how to manage it, it becomes a curse. And they just end up squandering it in nearly all cases. If you think of an analogy for these three generations of wealth, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. So, hard times built the wealth. So you have hard, good and weak. Make it, manage it, squander it. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.